0: You are now listening to the Life at Humber podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. In this episode of Love in the Time of Corona, join members of the Humber College and Centennial College community as they explore activism as a language of love, connection, and community care during the COVID-19 pandemic. Panelists unpack their understanding and experiences of activism and raise questions for activists and those interested in activism to consider. This episode features Aaron Brown and Monique Chambers from Humber College, Dr. Sylvia Dodario and Sean Kinsella from Centennial College, and is moderated by Amida Singh and Rick Ezekiel. And with that said, enjoy the episode!
1: Alrighty, folks, Thank you to everyone who is joining us uh, this morning, I nearly said this afternoon, it, it, it is Friday and, and I'm glad we get to spend our Friday morning together. So as we begin our panel this morning, I, I want to first recognize that this is a joint uh, initiative between Centennial College and Humber College and while we're chiming in virtually today, Um, I want to acknowledge that that we're on the Treaty Lands and Territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Humber College specifically is located within uh, the Treaty Lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit and is uniquely situated along the Humber River watershed, which historically provided an integral connection for Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat peoples between Ontario Lakeshore and the Lake Simcoe and Georgian Bay area. And today the traditional meeting place of Toronto is still home to many indigenous people from across Turtle Island. And we're grateful to have the opportunity to work in the communities that have grown in the treaty lands of the Mississaugas. As we begin our session today, that's focusing on um, activism as love. um, It's important that we acknowledge that we're all treaty people and accept our responsibility to honor all our relations and think about how concepts of activism, concepts of love and connection, Um, really need to bring and consider a a historical context around colonization uh, that certainly impacted the the ways that we connect today with with, uh, our our different relations. So welcome to our episode four of Love in the Time of Corona. I called it an episode because we have a podcast as well. Um, And we're excited today to be talking about activism as well. Um, and, and what we'll do is actually share the link to uh, our uh, other podcasts from our previous episodes where, where you'll get to learn a little bit more um, about our panelists as well as some of the other initiatives that, that, and discussions that we've had uh, on these topics of finding connection and intimacy d- during a pandemic. In today's episode, we, we are really excited to explore this topic of activism as a form of community care, as a form of connection and as a form of love and healing. And we also want to talk about and we'll be exploring themes of how love existence and connection itself is a form of activism, particularly in marginalized communities where, where visibility and different forms of love um, might might not be part of our dominant narratives and our dominant societies and communities. So just showing up and engaging in connection, engaging in love can be a form of activism in and of itself. We know that finding spaces for, for collective meaning making, finding spaces to advocate and engage in activism together um, and creating those spaces more than finding them uh, is a really important aspect uh, of well-being, of connection, of forging sense of belonging and of healing in different marginalized communities. And there's been a lot of fantastic work done in this space. Uh, I think of Elon Mayer's work in, in um, working with and studying resilience in sexual and gender minorities which really identifies that, that, that ways of forging space for, for ourselves is a critical aspect of um, you know maintaining well-being and really challenging some of the systems that, that, that might impact our well-being. And similar work has been done by Brianna French and colleagues in thinking about a radical healing framework in communities of color, and really how that aspect of activism and and again, creating space um, and advocating for change can, can be an important aspect of. of um, undergoing a healing journey and pushing back against systems of oppression and racism. And similarly, we know, know from work that's been done in, in Indigenous communities and so many of the incredible communitarian values that serve as sources of resilience in Indigenous communities, um, that connection to land, connection to culture, connection to each other in, in activism, again, sir, serves as a brilliant source of, of well-being and intimacy um, within the communities we serve. So, so I think through our panel stories today, we'll we'll hear lots more themes about all of these issues. So the questions we've asked to our panel today are, how do we use activism as a language of community, connection and love during COVID-19? And how can love, love and connection be activism in and of itself? So our panelists will be sharing their own stories and their own connections to these topics. Um, and with that brief introduction and some words, and I didn't share with you, my name is Rick Ezekiel. I'm the director of Equitable Learning uh, Health and Wellness at Centennial College, and really grateful to be part of this brilliant panel who will who we'll hear a little bit more from after. So with that, I'll hand it over to my colleague, Amita. Thanks,
2: Rick. Uh, so as Rick mentioned, my name is Amita. I am a counsellor within the Centre for Accessible Learning and Counselling Services, and I am also Um, the sexual violence support coordinator at Centennial College. Um, So before we get into too much of the uh, conversation, um, we would like to take a moment to locate the conversation within the broader context of the 16 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. Uh, So this is something that started in 1991, and it it has been observed annually all over the world. and I also want to, to contextualize as well, given the um, missing and murdered indigenous women, um, I want to take a chan- take take this moment to recognize that the impact um, upon survivors of intimate partner violence has always been severe and worse so now during this pandemic. Um, and then when we add levels of intersectionality, um, you know, when we're talking about indigenous women, women in rural areas women with accessibility needs, women who identify as LGBTQ, um, that that harm increases exponentially. So we want to take this time to recognize um, that this is an ongoing uh, discussion around how we can can use our voices and use our activism to bring awareness and bring some action into creating change uh, regarding intimate partner violence. Um, Also, uh, after a year that has highlighted the gross inequality of our society as a whole, um, you know, we saw activism in the form of public protests from earlier in the year with the Wet'suwet'en demonstrations um, uh, against the coastal gasoline pipelines to the Black Lives Matter protests for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Regis korchinski paquette here in, in Toronto. Uh, Not to mention demonstrations in Hong Kong and Brazil, even a few days ago, uh, right here in Toronto, we had demonstrations for farmers in the Punjab. Um, You know, so there's so many, so many ways that activism is demonstrated um, in society and in in our own backyard. Uh, So we're engaging in this discussion today to lend our voices to the global dialogue of activism to question how we even conceptualize activism and think about ways that we might actually already be engaging in activism in our own unique ways. Um, So with that, I will pass it on to Eric Uh,
0: Hi folks. And uh, thank you for um, that introduction, Rick and Amida. And Amida, you know, I really appreciate You highlighting a lot of activism that's taking place beyond also like, you know, Western North America, which I think is really important for us all to be um, really considering. Um, And so for for folks who don't know me, my name is Aaron Brown, and I am the coordinator of sexual violence prevention and education at Humber College, Um, and my pronouns are he, him and his. Um, And I I think it's really important for me when I'm thinking about this topic. to really begin by sharing how I uh, attempt to uh, define activism. And I, I think that there's been a bit of a move to activism as a, you know, a very accessible thing for everyone to engage in. Um, that showing up to a protest as activism or writing a letter to your city councilor as activism. And while I like that it seems as though anyone can do activism, um, I do think that there is a degree of sustained rigor involved uh, that exceeds these simple steps. I think that they're great paths into activism. Um, but for me, I, I really envision activism as involving sustained organization and rigor that necessitates um, a bit more intentionality and, and critical thinking than uh, just showing up or you know, copying and pasting an email template. Um, Bearing this in mind, I think it's uh, important to contextualize everything I say by noting that I don't consider myself to be an activist. You know, I'm, I'm really still learning and challenging myself to do more, um, but I'm just not there yet. Um, if anything, you know, I, I really think of myself as um, what some folks call like a slacktivist, where uh, I share the educational resources and information through social media. Um, without necessarily like putting my body on the line in, in the same way that other folks do. Um, I, you know, I tend to engage by like donating money or I do like the copying and pasting the email templates to city councillors, et cetera. Um, and I think for me, really the biggest leap that I've engaged in recently um, was drafting my own email instead of using a template uh, to Ryerson University's president regarding their intended collaboration with the Toronto Police Services. Um, and so like that for me was a leap, which like, I think is just to say that there's a lot of growth that I need to undergo um, still before I really consider myself an activist and, and part of like an activist community. I also want to acknowledge that uh, while I am queer and there certainly is queer activism that takes place, I find that my identity as a white cisgender man um, really, trumps my queerness. And so I enter spaces predominantly as an ally, um, even when thinking about the queer community, which contains multitudes. Um, So all of which is to say that um, I'm really in my infancy when it comes to this conversation. I'm someone who um, does not necessarily need or rely on or necessarily feel the same benefits Um, of activism as transparently and in the way that others do and and I think because of that comfort um, I need to challenge myself and hold myself accountable to doing the work for others while being mindful that I don't get to decide what that work looks like. Um, I think that in the the age of social media and creating our personal brands um, for me, one of the things that I'm really reflecting on and thinking about is how the activist mantle um, is a form of branding and, and clout for folks. And so um, I actually see this complaint from activists that I follow who really see it as a danger to the work that they're trying to accomplish. Um, folks who are treating it as a form of social capital or in some cases, a form of economic capital. And, and an example of this is Um, Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors has inked a deal with Warner Bros, uh, which is a move that has received a lot of criticism from other activists for centering personal gain over community gain. And I think that there's a lot of ways for us to understand that decision and unpack it. And for me, I'm still figuring out, like, what does that mean? But I I think that these are interesting conversations happening between activist communities, which I, I think is really interesting. And I feel that we need to be constantly reflecting on both the intention behind uh, and the means by which we accomplish our work. Uh, And for me, it's been really helpful to listen to and actually, you know, like read critique of activism that challenges, for instance, like very capitalist approaches. Um, I'm also drawn to a series of tweets from uh, Shanice Indowabo, uh, who a month ago today wrote, who do you want to recognize or remember you when you're doing activism? Is it community? Is it academics? Is it the media? If the only people that know your name are other academics, are you really doing activism? I've always wondered this. Folks have been talking a lot about who has and hasn't been giving them the recognition they deserve. People with big platforms are criticized for not sharing the spotlight with other folks with big platforms. Is the goal of activism to be seen by the colonial state and others who function within it? Or is the goal to be seen by the very people you're fighting for? How many of us are known outside our academic activist circles? And I just thought like, whoa, like that is is such a, Fantastic series of questions for reflection. And I I think it's really important for us to be able to grapple with these questions. Um, And I really like the way um, that those that we're fighting for are are centered in those questions. You know, how do we really remove our ego from the process? Um, Which then leads me to, you know, the central question that we're trying to tackle today, because I need to make sure that I do address it. which is how do we use activism as a language of community connection and love? And I read that firstly, almost more as, can we use activism as a language of community connection and love? Um, To which I would say that language is, you know, that is all inherent within activism. It really feels like a core tenet. Um, For me, I, I really view activism as a way of showing and sharing love. Uh, And I think that we can't do it without community and connection. It's not a solitary experience. Um, And and I think that um, for some of us, that's really challenging within a, you know, this Westernized individual centric uh, society that we're existing within. Um, But with respect to how we can actually engage in activism, I do feel less equipped to speak uh, as I'm still learning. Um, For instance, you know, I I do think attending protests is a great step, but I think we also need to ensure that we're doing some learning ahead of time. Um, You know, what are the demands that are being made by a specific protest for whom and by whom? What safety precautions are being put in place, particularly during COVID-19? And you know, how does our ability to participate potentially shift depending on whether, you know, we're immunocompromised, for instance. Um, I I really ask myself, like, what do I know about appropriate etiquette for engaging, Um, such as, you know, ensuring that any photos or videos don't contain people's faces, um, and recognizing that police will manipulate that and seek out and find activists, and then there will be Um, harmful policing that takes place of these folks? And so, you know, those are questions that I'm really trying to to grapple with before I engage. Um, I really think about, you know, donating money is another great way that people support causes. But again, are we doing our research ahead of time? Um, People still to this day will give Sean King money. And if you do, like, please, please, please Google Sean King controversy, you're going to find tens of articles outlining all the manipulative ways that he takes people's money in the name of Black lives and can't account for it. Um, And so I really like we need to be thinking through our steps as we're engaging. I think it's just so important. Um, I know for me, like I'm really inclined to, um, you know, throw money at a cause or or show up to a protest or share something on, on social media. Um, partially because it requires you know minimal effort or minimal research and like I can feel really good about it Um, but I I just think that there needs to be more effort in this process and for me this period of isolation during COVID-19 has actually given me a lot of time back in my life and that's given me a lot more um, opportunity to dedicate a good deal of that time towards learning and so I'm Uh, doing a lot of reading right now, a lot of listening and really trying to build my own ethics and analysis so that should I ever step into more of an activist or organizer role, I'm equipped to do so appropriately. And I'm actually waiting for like Indigo to drop off a book right now, Take Back the Fight by uh, Nora Lurito, which is all about how do we engage in, in feminism in this age and uh, which I think is really fascinating. And so, like, those are the things that I'm really trying to spend my time doing. I do think that this is a good way to start, but I um, also think it's really important to know that, like, a goal I'm setting for myself is to really figure out how to, to move out of this more passive work and figure out how it becomes operationalized. And, and that's really a next step for me, because I also think that sometimes we get into these conversations and, you know, it's, I'm going to do a lot of uh, listening, a lot of reading, a lot of reflecting, and then there's like no action that happens, and so I need to hold myself accountable to that, and I, and I think that there's a lot of folks who, uh, who do. Um, and then I, I really want to end um, by acknowledging, so activist and, and you, Windsor, uh, law student Josh Lamer challenges us to name who radicalizes us, um, and so I want to end by sharing gratitude for those um, from whom I learned a great deal and who and have really contributed to my ongoing radicalization. And so um, I really want to acknowledge Josh Lamers, who um, is engaging in a real fight right now with you Windsor regarding a great deal of anti-black racism, of homophobia, transphobia, just so much violence that is happening. Um, and and so I really want to acknowledge him and and I learned so much from him. I think about Derica Purnell, Courtney Skye, Zoe Samudzi, uh, McMillan-Cotton and Nora Loretto. And I just, I'm so indebted to these folks as I continue to develop my own frame of ethics and analysis. Um, and so I just, I really want to share, uh, some gratitude for them. Um, and so I, I think I'll, I'll finish there and, um, I'll pass it over to Sylvia unless there's folks who have any questions from the panel. Thanks so much, Aaron. Wow. Um, sorry, I. Uh,
3: do we wanna open it up to questions after each or do we wanna keep the flow going? I'm really sorry.
1: We don't have any uh, questions in the Q&A right now. Um, if folks do have any questions for, for Aaron, I think uh, the panel can welcome to ask or we can keep the flow going with, with your awesome words, Sylvia. I think that'd be Thanks. great.
3: Thanks. Thanks so much. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Sylvia Diderio. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the manager of equity and inclusion at Centennial College, uh, myself and my family are settlers on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe. Erin, um, you, uh, you really positioned this in such an interesting way. I love the themes that you really brought out there, especially around intentionality and personal growth, um, as well as, you know, thinking through and reflecting on the means of engaging in the work Um, that was, uh, for me, a tremendous question posed about who do we want to be seen by, I think that's going to resonate with me for a really, really long time, Um, and I, I hope maybe to, uh, to figure out some of that threading uh, in the pieces that I want to raise myself. So I'll start just by just giving a brief background that I approach the work that I do and the life that I lead with an acute sense that our bodies have been socialized to support massive systems of oppression. And so I'm passionate about the work that it takes to acknowledge and heal those deep programmed layers within us that may contribute to the everyday and institutionalized forms of oppression for all folks. I am an intersectional feminist and so I know that my equity work includes working towards liberating all bodies, all forms of oppression and recognizing and respecting the intersecting ways that our experiences play out. And so on that note, I've been thinking about activism a lot um, as this topic has come up, especially during the 16 Days of Activism campaign, which um, is always really meaningful for me as a survivor of gender-based violence. Um, I, I believe that activism has been a core part of my being since I became conscious of the world around me. I have experienced deep emotional connection to injustice in a way. That is difficult for me to often separate that which is mine to address, heal, challenge, and that which is not mine, that which is, you know, belongs outside of me. So on that note of defining uh, activism, I take activism to mean taking intentional action to address and impact social injustice. And because of Aaron, I will add that sustained rigor in there as well, totally agree with that. Um, in order to create positive change in the lives of those who have or continue to experience harm, inequity, and exclusion. So for me, activism as a language has really evolved as I have come to better understand myself and what I can and cannot offer the world. So I'll start by saying, as a young person, I was aware and curious about inequities. I grew up in an immigrant household within the strict confines of sexism and patriarchy as a normalized part of my culture. And so as a child of the 80s, I'm not sure if this uh, this is understandable to others or folks on the call, but as a child of the 80s, I was impacted by injustice that In my community and households were either normalized or deemed out of our control. So for me in the 80s there was this real heightened sense um, of homophobia, transphobia, especially around the AIDS epidemic. Um, Racism was an everyday event. It was a very normalized part um, of of what I saw outside of me. So was sexism. Um, physical and sexual violence, there were missing kids on milk carton containers, like I could not escape the images, the oddity of world vision, and the colonial portrayal of starving kids in Africa during commercial breaks. How do you ignore that? And, you know, I had immediate like brief encounters with Indigenous kids in foster care on my street, and then never seeing them again. So I saw it, I felt it, and I needed to have answers. And those were answers that in my community, nobody wanted to give a child. But in hindsight, I realized that those are answers that I don't think many people in my community had. And so for me as a young person, activism was a language of curiosity. Since then, I have experienced activism in so many different forms over the years, be it demonstrations, protesting, boycotting, striking. For a long period of time, I engaged in organizing and activism work that centered around using my body as an instrument for change. There is this deep value in protest and public political resistance, and I am super moved and changed by those who have put their bodies in harm's way in order to demand demand a more just world. People like Sylvia Rivera and Marsha Johnson, Angela Davis, Colin Kaepernick, Malala, Greta, Autumn Peltier. I have a deep love and sustained passion. Or sorry, they show a deep love and sustained passion for the work that they do. But I realized that in all the organizing that I have done, I have never really felt that same resonance. My organizing as a younger person was rooted in this notion of blame and shame calling out injustice and demanding action in really aggressive ways i was not showing up whole to disrupt the world i was showing up angry and hurt i i feel like all of those unanswered questions about the world created this dam inside of me deep inside of me to hide the mounting and unprocessed emotions that I had about the world and so for many years my attempts to address injustice were obstructed or ridiculed by my parents my family who were immigrants and I think it was out of fear of judgment or reprisal but most deeply I think it was out of a deep desire to keep me safe. The deep impact this had on me as a young person meant that not only was I not supported in developing social awareness, but in fact, it meant that my whole sense of self and how I understood the world was threatened. So when I was able to begin engaging in activism as a young adult, I did so from a place of immense anger, grief, and sadness. Activism was the language of armor for me, armor that I needed in order to feel like I was finally being seen and heard. Instead of activism being a response to changing unjust conditions, it was a rebellious act that centered me in my pain and in the work that I was doing. So over time, I learned to see this. I learned to see that activism required that I show up whole, or else I run the risk of perpetuating all that I was fighting against. I started to think about how can I make harm impossible when my motives were so rooted in hurt? We all know and we've all heard that hurt people hurt people, right? So my relationship with activism meant that I needed to examine my relationship with the world's My relationship with activism meant that I hadn't yet examined my relationship with the world. Until this point, I hadn't been given an option of how I wanted to express myself through social change, and so that damned up anger and grief and hurt were now being released on picket lines, marching in streets, in open letters, Um, and I was recycling those harmful and unprocessed emotions, creating more of what I wanted to eliminate. I grew to realize that my activism required that I ought to heal as much internally as I intended to see changed externally. I needed to pivot my gaze away from what I don't want to see in this world to what I do want to see in this world. And then I started to think about, oh, how do we imagine what a just world ahead looks like? What does it look like and how do we get there? I love audrey Lorde's discussion of the everyday erotic she says that we begin to recognize our deepest feelings we begin to give up being satisfied with suffering and self-negation and with the numbness we so often seem like are the only alternative in our society our acts against oppression become integral with self motivated and empowered from within this shift profoundly changed activism for me activism became a language of healing it became a language of healing on so many intersecting levels adrian marie brown talks about transformative justice amongst other things i'm reading this amazing incredible book called pleasure activism by her and says that rather than punishing people for surface level behavior or restoring conditions to where they were We need to find the roots of the harm together and make harm impossible. This direction for social action moves beyond justice because it involves a truly systemic and compassionate understanding that we need to change the conditions, the inequities that drive harm and violence. It considers how punitive responses to injustice can perpetuate violence, cutting people off from needed supports and community filling jails with racialized and indigenous folks without addressing the root cause of trauma. So in this reimagining of what I want the world to be, I realize that I also need to cultivate an internal environment that does no harm to myself, to my family, and to my immediate community. This requires me to reimagine conflict resolutions so that I can end toxic patterns, that perpetuate oppressive relational dynamics. In my most intimate relationships, all the way out to everyday encounters. It is in these everyday personal acts and in the ways that we can model new generative opportunities that we have massive ripple effects. This is a more proactive way of obtaining new outcomes, especially because it speaks to me as a parent of young kids building new possible ways of leaning into a just world, co-creating an emotional blueprint for how we could work towards new systems, which I think most of us weren't actually brought into um, those, new, those new modes of thinking and doing. So to bring co- this back to COVID, during COVID, I find it's really easy to be swept up in all the grief that the world is experiencing. COVID is clearly magnifying what has always existed. For some, this has been a real awakening to the uneven playing field that has existed for historically marginalized communities for centuries. And yet the pandemic has also further entrenched others in self-denial. From the disproportionate impacts that COVID is having on racialized and indigenous communities, people with disabilities, an array of disabilities, women, LGBTQ2S folks, To you know, one thing that's really stood out for me is seeing the, like, oppressors co-opting the language of the oppressed. It's been truly something to see white folks protest their human right, sometimes with guns, to abstain from complying or just from being a part of community care practices. This is less about my views on COVID than it is about the divisiveness, I think, that really has emerged here. And so I am reminded that I can only stand my post in order to do so well. It is important for me to be aware that I'm actively processing rather than suppressing these hard emotions in reaction to what is happening around me. COVID has activated a heightened level of intentionality, going back to, you know, Erin's real emphasis on that, which I really love, intentionality in my activism that asks me to be crystal clear about what is mine and what isn't and with what medium my activism can take place through and what mediums drain me. I appreciate Alice Walker's famous words that activism is my rent for living on this planet and I am mindful that the currency for which I pay that rent matters tremendously. The Building Movement Project talks about mapping our roles in a social change ecosystem. And I really appreciate the, ten- the attention to the different roles that we can play in our pursuit for equity and shared liberation. I'll share a link to that. Um, but essentially, social change and activism are an ecosystem. And when, when, we, when we are attentive to the ways in which we can leverage our strengths, we align ourselves and get in right relationship with social change rather than just performing activism. These roles include the frontline responders who we often envision, um, but the activism ecosystem also includes the caregivers, the disruptors, the healers, the storytellers, the visionaries, the builders, the experimenters, the guides, and the weavers. I love that. To me, a critical part of activism in this era is finding our place in that ecosystem of change with rigor with intentionality and with sustained efforts <laughs> so surviving to end surviving this pandemic and its stressors has happened in part through the joys and pleasure that i have learned to glean now from my social justice work my self-care today looks a lot like setting precise boundaries around what work brings me joy and what work does not and in complete transparency as a survivor of sexual assault and gender-based violence, and during the 16 days of activism, I have found that co-creating this series with you all, um, among the richness of our intersectional identities, I have granted myself permission to be able to use love as a lens and as a form of analysis to continue to unpack and explore my personal healing and its intersections with the work that we all do here in higher ed. So thanks so much.
4: I'm just shaking my head, and and you can't hear me under the side, Sylvia. But I'm going. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs>
3: <laughs> sorry, I'm just going to backtrack one second, and I would love to pass it off to Monique. I'm so sorry. <laughs> just oh, oh the formalities. But thank you. Oh,
4: <laughs> the formalities. Um, so much there. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. There's so much there. Um, I'm writing things down. I feel like after you shared Sylvia, I need to take that just a second to just reflect a little bit. I'm writing things down like love as a lens, like that's, that's beautiful. And I think that that's where empathy comes in, right? Um, and I, and I, I really believe that um, this is where we move away from activism um, as it being performance-based, right? Rather than it being with it rigorous intentionality, <laughs> right, as, as Aaron has has, has shared. Um, so I really appreciate that. I think for myself, um, there's so much that I need to unpack uh, and that I, I won't be able to do today. But I think for myself, activism is indeed a language of healing. And, and I'm, I've i realized that as I've begun to really uh, think about this idea. Of course, I look uh, when I look at um, the world and navigate the world, I can't help but, you know, reflect on my own personal identity as a uh, racialized body, right? My black identity, my black and gendered identity, um, and why there is a need to heal—not just for myself, but for um, my community, right? There's this need to heal uh, collectively. So I can't help but but think about some of these things. Of course, I'm grateful, right, for those who have come before me, um, who have gone forth and created social change. Because when I think about initially, when I think about like on a surface level. Think about activism, um, it's the action of bringing about social change, right? Um, so, you know, whether it had been through marches and protests, or media activism, or political campaigning, what have you, right, I'm grateful, because of those things, I'm able to vote as a woman. Um, I'm university educated, which means that I'm able to go to school with, you know, white counterparts and experience higher education, not just an education, or not just, you know, high school, but higher, education and that's huge and that might mean nothing for many, but that means something for me and that means something for my community. I'm I'm privileged to work in a reputable institution where I'm able to speak on social injustice and infuse critical thinking into the programming that I set for uh, my students every single day, which allows me to really enjoy my career um, as a middle class working woman and I, I say all of that because if activism really is the action of bringing about social change, I am grateful for those who have gone before me, who have done the work so that I'm able to be a beneficiary today. How has COVID-19 you know, affected our ability to engage in and organize around activism? It's, it's interesting. We, we say, I don't know, we've heard it so many times, we're in unprecedented times, right? It's. Um, no one could have ever imagined that we'd be here. And I mean, we're in December (laughs) and we're still here, right? Um, So online platforms has been a way to advocate for various causes, Um, literally at the click of a button. uh, You and I are able to show our solidarity around specific causes. So that's what makes it, I think, convenient. I think that's what makes it convenient, being able to show my solidarity in a very convenient way um, voices across the globe, we are able to come together and unite, um, but the question is, is, is is that enough, right, is the click of a button enough, and I think, Erin, you were kind of getting at this, is that enough, and the answer is clearly no, but is it a start, and the answer is yes. Uh, when I think about the Black Lives Matter movement, I think about um, Blackout Tuesday, and I will touch on it by saying that I think it's a great illustration on how people from all nationalities were able to come together to show um, their solidarity online by simply, again, clicking a button, right? Uploading a Black screen on their social media pages as a way to highlight the social injustice that many of us Black people continue to face as a result of systemic racism. I go back to the question, but is that enough? Certainly, it's a start. Right. And I do want to acknowledge that it is a start. And I do also want to acknowledge that I think that it prompted a lot of conversation and dialogue. And, and really, I think that's where the fun begins. That's where the learning begins, right. Is, is being able to have these critical dialogues. Um, So I realized for myself that when I uploaded my black screen, that it just wasn't enough that I had to show up, not just virtually, but also I had to show up on the grounds and that was new for me. So when we talk about intentionality and I'm, I'm just reflecting on myself that was new for me to get up out of my house to inconvenience myself and to get on on the ground um and if i wasn't showing up on the ground if i wasn't making that effort then how was i any different than say for instance white businesses that had said what they needed to say but then didn't make any changes in their policy and that's me not throwing it out to anybody else that's me like self-reflecting like how monique How are you any different? Um, Which brings me to the question of what does my personal activism really look like? Not what grand convenient gesture can I perform? No, no, no. I'm asking Monique, what intentional steps are you taking that speaks to your value system? And how are those steps, those intentional pieces bringing about social change? As I reflect upon my personal activism, I refer back to this past summer where uh, most of the world watched the life of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others be taken by the hands of white police officers. For I think on a global scale, that was really traumatizing. And I think for particular groups of people, it was re-traumatizing. because for many of us, we've had personal run-ins with white figures in authority. So it wasn't new, it was re-triggering. That's what that was for for a lot of um, racialized groups. So I believe that because of those incidences um, that I mentioned previously, for our community, um, we've been in a perpetual place of needing to continually engage in personal and collective healing where we aren't just loving on ourselves, but we're also loving on each other. And this is kind of what I want to move into, right? Um, I think the Black Lives Matter movement um, serves as a beautiful reminder of the importance of supporting each other, of supporting our own businesses, Black-owned businesses. I think it speaks to the power of Black love. You know, I think it's, it's one of the ways that we can say, I see you, my brother, I see you, my sister, I see you, Black body. I see you and I support you. It's how we show up for each other. And although Black love for myself personally is a new terminology, um, but as I began to dig a little bit more, I realized that the concepts that are interwoven in this terminology, Black love, the concepts aren't new, right? Most people who identify as Black uh, will have their own personal definitions of what, quote unquote, Black love is, right? Um, it's unique because it speaks to our individual experiences. So what I, Monique, have grown up to understand what I was taught and what I've grown up to experience and understand about love, there's that piece to it, right? And that's individual. But it also, what, what makes I think Black love a little bit different is that um, it takes into account our communal history and our heritage around oppression, social injustice, and resiliency as a people. Black love is a bond between two Black bodies that share a historical legacy that is rooted in injustice, in pain, in sorrow, in resiliency, and strength, a strength that reimagines and a strength that overcomes. And so Black love is a form of activism in itself. This is is my reflection, this is what I'm thinking about. Black love then is is a form of activism itself. Because it's an action that facilitates social change, right? As Black people, we aren't continually bombarded. I sorry, we are continually bombarded by the media and other means by these negative messages that we aren't enough. I'm not Black enough. I'm too Black. I'm too strong. I'm too intimidating. You know that we as a people were undeserving. We're unqualified. We're criminalized. There's so much more. We're all these different things that the media will will. Um, shell out to us. And so by engaging in Black love, I realize it's a form of activism in itself, right? Um, it's a form of resistance where in spite of all the opposition that we face, when we get up every single day, it's us with intentional, rigorous intentionality. I'm, I'm going to just throw that in every single time. Um, every day that we choose to show up for each other, um, literally and figuratively, that's us engaging in Black love, right? It's, it's when we counter narratives by teaching our sons and our daughters, our children, that they can dream big, that they can become business owners and doctors and lawyers and any other professional that they choose to be. And to let them know that they are enough, that while they're living in a world that is telling them that they aren't, when we engage in Black love, it's that's is that saying one Black body to another that you are enough and I believe that that is so liberating it's a form black love is a form of resistance because it means we give space to learn from each other in respect in our respective areas of expertise and 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 how we grow with each other and and how we create opportunities and spaces to support each other when we create spaces um, that allows us to be our full selves we're not hiding back or you know I I don't have to, it's funny, if you sit in a conversation with a group of um, Black people, you will hear very common themes and things like, you know, when I enter into the boardroom, if I go to my workplace, I have to put on this hat or that hat. And that's not just a racialized thing. That's, that's a gender thing. That's an everything thing, right? It's, it's, but when we create spaces that allow us to be our full selves, unapologetically, We're engaging in acts of resistance and liberation, believe it or not, right? We're resisting the violent criminalization and animalization of our bodies by defiantly taking up more space than we are given. And we are engaging in an act of liberation because we are choosing to live in the world as we see fit. That's to me, when I think about um, our intentionality and our choices, I think about Black love and it's a form of resistance. And it creates a union that makes us as a people stronger together than we are separately. So I reflect, you know, what is my personal activism? What does that really look like? As I reflect on my own identity as a Black heterosexual Christian married woman who is working in a predominantly white institution, I can't help but think about my own personal activism, how I am privileged to mentor and empower Black students, Black bodies, every day in the equity hub in which I work at at Humber College. I didn't do it at the beginning, so I'm going to take a moment to do it now. Um, My name is Monique Chambers, and I am the coordinator for student diversity and inclusion initiatives at Humber College. And it really is a privilege that I get to grind it out every day on the ground for my students. I get to empower Black students each and every day. And that to me is an expression of Black love, right? Um, And in that engagement, in doing that, it's a form of activism. And that provides me healing. So I go back to what I said in the very beginning that, yeah, you know, Sylvia, I agree. Activism for myself is a language of healing. When I think about 16 days of activism and those types of dialogues, I'm intentionally at work, I'm intentionally looking at my online programming, and I'm planning out ways to address the ways you know, black women are disproportionately victimized by sexual violence, right. And I'm thinking to myself, like, who can I bring in that identifies as black with specific experience and expertise, right. Um, And that's me sharing and giving opportunities, right. And, And again, that's my expression of black love. It's introducing students to black counselors. I remember bringing a specific black counselor and just so that my students, they can feel safe when they're sharing whatever it is that they're going through, you know, navigating the world that's filled with um, injustice um, that's unique to their identity, that they can feel comfortable in doing that with someone who just gets it. Someone who can easily empathize, someone who shares similar experiences. And when I look at our online programming, we're focusing the entire year on healing and resistance. Why? Because after the summer that we've just had, which only really scratches the surface of what community, our community has so um, often experienced, I believe that collectively, we need to continue to engage in personal and collective healing. That's important. These are some of this, uh, the conversations that we're having at our kitchen tables in our homes with mom and grandma. These are the conversations that I'm I remember as a little girl having while my mom was kind of braiding my hair and I'd, I'd sit in um, I'd sit on the floor and she'd be sitting on on the um, on the couch where we'd watch things like the Cosby Show. We're having these same conversations, maybe a little bit watered down, <laughs> but we're having these same conversations, and that to me is an expression of black love. I'm doing that in the chat rooms. I'm doing that today, even on online forums. In a virtual world that is um, in a virtual world, this is how I'm using my online platform to exhibit my core values. And the question is that I want to leave with you today is how are you? Because activism is no longer limited to physical barricades. Rather, it's open to new and emerging possibilities. And within that space, we wanna continue to facilitate community, to facilitate connection and to facilitate love. So how are you using your online platform to exhibit your core values? And is it enough? I don't know. But what I do know is that by facilitating community, connection and love, we are bringing healing to not just ourselves, but for communities and particular communities at large. So as we reflect on these pieces, I'm going to pass it along to Sean.
0: Can I jump in like just very briefly? Um, I just, I really like this piece that you've shared around activism as collective healing and talking about um, ideas of collective resilience. I think that um, often conversations around like resilience and grit are um, really focused on people just continuing to exist in a society that like grinds us down, harms us repeatedly on a daily basis. Um, And I I think that resilience is so focused on the individual in many ways in in our society. And so um, I really, really just appreciate you bringing that up, um, and I'll post a link in the chat for folks to um, an article on resilience that really um, explores this idea of moving toward this collective understanding. And, and so, I just really appreciate you bringing that to the space today.
4: Yeah, because sorry, Erin, as you were as you were talking earlier, I thought to myself, oh, I guess I'm a slacktivist too, <laughs> right? Like, I identified, but then you know, it's it's it goes back to that piece of we're stronger together, right? It's it's what is the impact that we have collectively, right? Which is which is what you're kind of um, stringing on. So yeah, thank you for that.
5: Should I, should I leave leap on now? Is that the is that the cue? Is that the okay? Great. Um, so I'm just going to uh, introduce myself uh, in the way that I was taught. So Dancé Migazidodem was a Natishnikas Nehiwak, and uh, meanwhile Irish endow, um, meanwhile, uh, e endow, uh, meanwhile e agamit I endow uh, so I'm uh, Sean Kinsella I'm the uh, director of the eight fire at Centennial College um, and um, when I think of these this idea of activism and love um, where I sort of land on it um, is thinking about it as a crip uh, two-spirit indigenous person so one of the ways that I introduced myself uh, as part of that was to say that um, uh, I am a uh, or someone who falls between genders, is the way we might translate it in English. And um, as a crypt two spirit uh, indigenous person, um, the personal is political. And I want to preface that by saying that's whether we want to or not. So we don't get a choice as Indigenous people as to whether we are political or not, because of things like the Indian Act, because of the history of settler colonialism, and displacement, and violence on the lands that all of us now find ourselves. Um, we don't get that option. So, uh, in some ways, you know, it, it's an interesting balance of this notion—a little bit of of sort of like um, uh, uh, sort of activism and things—because we just we just don't get that choice, right? And I think that's true of a lot of um, folks who. Uh, like Indigenous, Black, and racialized folks um, because of the way that settler colonialism and white supremacy operates. Um, But I wanted to acknowledge that for us, even surviving and continuing to do so is a form of activism. And uh, the relationality um, of those pieces as someone who's marginalized in our own communities, um, you know, as a two-spirit and crip person, um, but I also have a lot of privileges because I am uh, lighter skinned or more pale. I do have education. I am a gr- I have a graduate degree, uh, and I'm mixed, and my positional privilege at an institution uh, that has also profited from the displacement of Indigenous people who are my kin, right? So as a as a Soto person, um, you know, uh, an Cree person, a long time ago we were all one people. So when we talk about the Mississaugas or the Anishinaabe people, you know, those are my people as well, and I benefit from an institution that has displaced those people as part of settler colonialism. And, you know, not necessarily specific to Centennial College, but the overall sort of dominant system. Um, I also have to recognize from a self-location piece that there's limitations to my perspective and experiences, and I have to acknowledge the responsibility that I have to others in, in advocating on these lands that I was brought to because of racism. So my family are signatories of treaties 4, 6, and 8, and that's not this territory, right? This is Treaty 13, um, and that's more sort of Manitoba and uh, you know, what is now called uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta, um, and James Bay, but in coming here, I have a responsibility to the lands that I find myself on. And so, if we think of the fact that everything that we do, if the personal is political, then everything we do is political as indigenous people. And I want to think about in in asking these questions, you know, how does the personal and political interact with, you know, the sort of way to put it is how we get down, right? Like how does it interact with those, those sort of pieces around the erotic and the pieces around those things? And we have lots of discussions within community around. Uh, activism. Uh, most people that, most Indigenous folks that I spend a lot of time with, you know, uh, a lot of them were were folks who were resistors in the 60s and 70s, you know, um, a lot of them are, are a legacy of resistance and and those operations haven't necessarily changed, you know, because the the kinds of violence that we're being exposed to hasn't changed, right? It hasn't changed in 150 years despite us using, you know, uh, similar tactics and then some additional ones with things like the internet. Um, I also think that, um, to survive as Indigenous Black and racialized people under white supremacy and settler colonialism is activism, right? And I'm going to problematize the the word activism and the notion of it a little bit later. But I want to acknowledge that loving each other as 2S Crip Indians is a form of political resistance because we're not supposed to exist. So one of the ways that settler colonialism has operated for Indigenous people is is that we are supposed to be assimilated. We are not supposed to exist. Those reserve lands were supposed to go to the crown and we've resisted that, you know, in, in some ways by, um, by creating kinship in cities and in some ways by creating connections with each other. Um, and so for myself, I prefer the term resistance versus activism because it acknowledges and recognizes that we're still living under settler colonialism so other places in the world can talk I think a little bit about you know being post-colonial and what that looks like and how do you decolonize from those structures we're we're not there because we're still living under settler colonialism you know I make a joke that uh, this week a couple in a couple of sessions I've been in that you know, part of my job is literally signing an agreement with the with the Queen. <laughs> like I have something on Letterhead that is me signing an agreement with the Queen. And I'm like, well, that feels familiar, right? Because those initial treaties that we signed were literally with the Queen. So I'm just reliving those ancestral pieces. Right. And I, you know, I love when I see sweeties in the streets at resistance movements and protests uh, or, or what some folks might call protests. And a lot of us build relationship amongst those lived experiences we have around oppression and in the ways that we support one another. And so I also think about the element of ceremony and I'm thinking specifically Specifically, hear about the strawberry ceremony that happens each February and how that is a, a, a profound action of sitting in grief with one another uh, and in support of community members who have experienced, uh, you know, and, and it's focused around those who have experienced um, the, the loss of, of, a, of, a, of a family member. Um, who identifies as uh, two-spirit women or girls. And lit- literally as part of that for our feast, like settler folks are asked to leave. And it's always a really funny moment when that when that moment comes where where it's just like, okay, if you're not infected by this, if you're not a community member, like please evacuate. And the sort of like look of like terror on settler's faces when they realize that, oh, okay, this space that I thought was also for me in, in reflecting of grief is not. And so I think about that a lot in terms of how ceremony itself, Uh, Is resistance under a political state that wants us to be dead and wants us to not exist? Um, And I think about um, what does decolonial indigenous queer love look like, and what does it look like for us to love each other uh, and ourselves as bodies that are invisibilized and should not exist? And so when I think about land based activism, you know, I also think about how even the language of activism is colonial, and you know. Is it activism if we're just trying to live our lives and wanting to do so in ways that we were actually promised under treaty uh, and that it is a settler colonial system imposed on us that requires us to spend our time advocating for our humanity uh, that should have been granted from the start as Anishinaabe, as Cree people, as Haudenosaunee people, as the people whose territories this are and this is. And so I think about as an example, is 1492 Land Back Lane, is what was happening with the, the Mi'kmaq fishermen, you know, with Wet'suwet'en, is that activism? You know, and I think about the actual arrests and removal from Indigenous territories that are happening as part of those movements. Uh, As an example, anyone associated with 1492 Land Back Lane, you know, uh, they were there's about 50 people that were sort of tracked down and arrested. And it could have been that they literally were dropping food off, right? That is that is as long as they were interacting with they were they were harassed by by the state. And so I also think about people being removed from encampments during the winter because they left shelters due to COVID. And what does that mean for class struggles? And what does that mean for our solidarity with one another. And that, you know, um, statistically speaking, uh, that many of those unhoused folks uh, are are indigenous, right? And the irony of them being unhoused on lands that are theirs, right? That, that, that these are ancestral territories that we were removed from, and that they, again, um, are, are struggling to, to survive on um, because of the way that the state has displaced us. And so I think a lot about what would we be up to as communities if we weren't constantly having to be in courts to defend our actual right to exist, right? I think about that a lot in terms of some of the the amazing figures like Lynn Gell and, and others who uh, have had to make uh, um, these massive claims to, and go to the, su- the Supreme Court and challenge the Crown um, to be recognized uh, as, as Status Indians, as an example, um, because of the colonial and, uh, and misogynist and sexist policies that excluded people. Um, and so I think about how do we balance in-person land defense with what we do digitally? And how do we create room for everyone in movements. So I'm also um, drawing on the, the work of um, uh, in care work, which I'll put in a link later. Um, and then this idea of when people do marches and things, is it accessible or is it performative? Um, how do we act as opposed to activism? um and in terms of accessibility as part of these pieces so as an example like if your march is you know and i say this as a crip person if your march is a whole you know through the whole winding through the whole streets of toronto folks like myself who have mobility issues are not going to be able to go and what are you saying to those people uh who can't do that work like are you saying that we matter less in those movements and what does that say about care and i think about um for myself the work of a collective i'm part of called the blue jays dancing together collective uh which is a a multi-generation skill share uh for for two-spirit and queer folks in the ways that, um, you know, in those spaces we have those conversations about people being able to participate as their ability levels allows because it's inherently built on us understanding each other as as crip two-spirit people. And I think about the roots of lateral violence and cancel culture and the idea of what if everyone mattered right so what if uh, every life was sacred and what if no one was disposable in our communities and where that disposability comes from which is capitalism and settler colonialism right and we have understandings of love um, being the teaching that all other teachings flow from and that there is an absolute love that creation has for us, right? And so when I think of the way that we think about as Indigenous folks and Anishinaabe and Cree folks, we think about how there's a spiritual component to to our worldview and that everything has life, that the land itself loves us and we should aspire to love as it does without exclusion or prejudice. So like rivers or, you know, I'm going to throw my like prairie queer Indian part in here where the sloughs, like they don't, discriminate based on your skin being darker or whether you're queer and say, you can't drink from me, right? Like that that's ridiculous. Like we, we understand that that's ridiculous um, because it's water and, and, but what if water is alive? And what if we should be, you know, endeavoring to treat other people in the same way that creation treats us? You know, the, the, I, we often talk about the sun as a similar idea that that, that that grandparent shines on all of us and doesn't exclude. It's not like, hey, I, you're, you know, systemically discriminated in, in, in our world. So I'm not gonna shine on you. I'm gonna shine on these like wealthy white people more. I mean they have access to beaches and stuff more I guess but you know um, but there's these pieces that it doesn't exclude right and so um, I think about how do we create care collectives and and I know for myself part of that is like how do we care for our knowledge keepers and elders and make sure that they're supported um, beyond what the system provides so you know um, we do um, I do specific care work with a with a a elder in Toronto um, who you know um, we go and like walk her dog and like visit with her every week. And, you know, part of that is because the, the system that is designed, you know, with ODSP and, and those other pieces doesn't cover enough. So we end up having to care for each other. And it's really profound. It's also a lot of work though, right? So, I mean, this is the other thing around how we're, we're spending our time. And how do we make sure that our community care is intersectional in the wake of, of celebrity as activists and who gets paid attention to, right? So when you look at who's being paid attention to, even in our own communities, um, you know, um, are, they, are they two-spirit folks? Are they folks who are lighter skinned? Are they folks who, uh, you know, um, are receiving large grants. Like who is it that uh, that is being paid attention to and who's being excluded? And I think here of the erasure of identity around uh, Regis Korczynski Paquette as an Afro-Indigenous person who was killed by the state, and I think about what does solidarity look like between Indigenous, Black, and racialized community with our own distinct experiences and understandings. Um, And I think about how uh, the point that was made earlier um, around how many of us are known outside our academic circles. And I think what's interesting for me is in our communities, our clans and our names, our nations are all a part of who we are as Indigenous peoples. And that we are vetted in community and our reputations go ahead of us because it's the way it's always been, right? So that idea of, uh, you know, uh, within our communities, like if if people don't know who you are, you are not teased for one, but then you're also not trusted, right? And there's a reciprocal connection that has to be built with people before we understand that that's a good person to go and talk to. And so, how do we create spaces um, within that for those who have been removed from our communities because of racism in the colonial state? And I'm thinking here about uh, like um, folks who have been taken out, like adoptees, or you know, from residential schools, um, from those impacted by anti-black racism, um, because uh, for whatever reason, the state is not good at recognizing that people can be more than one thing at a time. And then picking up on on what Monique said to me, my love letter to my peoples is to put myself in between the violence of the colonial state and the institution and to bring my medicine to them. Uh, and when I, ex- I describe what my what a, my name is, what it translates to in English is the medicine that light brings. And so I often think about that as part of my um, responsibilities and community and part of my uh, my accountability to community as somebody who carries that name is to bring that medicine. And I think about the work and survival we do uh, to and and how we honor each other for the sacrifice we are making to go places that are dangerous for us. so the 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 institution, despite all and every every institution under settler colonialism, I would make the argument. um these are dangerous to us, right? and it it's not, a personal thing. Like there are lots of people who are very kind and generous, but the state itself is still trying to kill us, right? Like full stop. So when we go to things that are uh, mechanisms of the state, we are going into dangerous territory, right? So we have to prepare ourselves. What armor do we have to put on to do that? And I think about for myself as a Cree person, we talk about this idea of, of counting coup, which is where uh, traditionally when we went into to battle, um, it was after a lot of de- deliberation and thought and consensus. But the idea was um, that the, the highest honor that you could claim was to essentially like touch, touch a part of one of your enemies and then and then ride away. That was far more, you know, Um, honoured than the ability to sort of take a life because all life is sacred. So it's a pretty significant thing to take a person's life. And the idea was you basically would like tap them with a stick. Um, And I think about that. That's literally what I'm doing every day with the institution as I redistribute resources from our community back into those communities because they were taken in the first place and creating that space. And I think about how um, returning home into community, into our people, what does that mean? And I think about the idea, a quote I saw this morning uh, from Megan Tipler was, Uh, and this is paraphrased but what if we taught about and thought about Indigenous success and brilliance as much as we talk about our trauma and suffering. So the, the focus of a lot of the work that we do around reconciliation and around Um, Indigenous recognition is around our trauma, is around our suffering, is about the current issues of the things that are happening to us. It's about the fact that we have boil water advisories, but we don't talk about um, what our success looks like. We don't talk about our brilliance and we don't talk about how complex our knowledge systems have been for thousands of years. And so, you know, even for ourselves, like at Centennial, when we do those discussions, like that is the second course you get to, (laughs) you know, we can bring Trent, but when we do it, the Saco Credential, like it, it is talking about those trauma pieces first, but it has to be balanced with this success and complexity and understanding these knowledge systems so those are the kinds of things i think about uh, about all of that piece but it is again that to create space and hold space in in a place that uh, doesn't want you to exist is activism it is love and it is about um, supporting each other through that Panel, you,
1: you folks are just brilliant, as always, I feel like I've had full body chills this whole time, just with some of the, the really kind of touching, moving, aspirational and inspirational aspects uh, of what you've all shared. Um, yeah, just just incredible. So, so thank you again for, for showing up so so reflectively, so, so um, openly in sharing your experience. Um, and I wonder maybe just as a first connection point across the panel, uh, I was thinking of these ideas that many of you shared, Aaron shared that idea of what radicalizes us and um, Monique talked so deeply about, you know, black love and, and connections and that being a form of res- resistance. And and I think all of our panelists really talked about that idea that the personal is political and activism is a personal and reflective act. So I'm really curious, and some folks have shared a little bit, but um, for each of the panel members, has there been a gap, galvanizing issue for you that, that really kind of sparked in you the motivation to, to connect with others and mobilize towards action? Can you think of a time that kind of, you know, did that in, in an interesting in, interesting way over your journey with activism or action or resistance? And, and, and thanks for that clarification, Sean. So thinking about when, when we get that motivation to connect and act together.
0: I can jump in Um, and I mean, for me, like 2020 has been a year. Um, And so for me, like it really was um, in the wake of George Floyd. And for me, um, you know, I I referenced this email to Ryerson's president um, earlier this year, and that was in direct response from a specific request from Josh Lamers, who is a graduate of, of Ryerson University and I think for me it it was the I, I mean Moni talked about this like how like just like across the globe this movement and this moment really was felt um and so for me I was like okay like I keep saying that I'm an ally and then like I'm, I'm saying this word and I'm not doing this word like I'm, I'm not really living this and so For me, there was a very specific request from Josh about, hey, everybody, email this person and tell them why this collaboration is incredibly harmful and going to um, even potentially result in loss of life for our students. Um, And for me, like that was the thing where I was like, cool, I can do this. And like that was just one of the ways to get started and it's terrifying to write to the president of an institution when I also work at um, an institution. I also live two streets down from Ryerson and um, to really like attach my own name to that was like a scary moment for me. And it, it feels so ridiculous to say that um, because like that's such a, a small thing to do. Um, but that for me has like now opened up a realm of possibility because I'm like right I did this the world didn't end like I mean it might but um, 2020 is not over yet but it, it just for me um, wasn't an, an affirming moment to be able to take that action I suppose.
3: I, uh, I don't know if I'm going to answer this question or not um, but I had a, a moment of shift for me in my organizing practices in um, 2007 I was on the executive for our union. I, was, um, I taught at York University at the time and was a grad student as well. And uh, we had a strike. We had a 12-week strike. It was ginormous. It was um, intriguing for me to be able to learn how to organize around labor rights. And I loved every part of it. And um, being on strike uh, opened up for me a really massive Dynamic that I hadn't yet considered in uh, the activist world that I was I was um, I was working with at the time. I realized how incredibly oppressive that space was, and for me, it really really catapulted me in understanding how we do this work in ways that recognize um, the sheer violence, the sheer oppression, the sexism, the patriarchy that can tend to be in these organizing spaces. And that really catapulted me to think about um, some of these big questions of, like Monique, you kept asking like, is this enough? And I, I, I found myself asking those questions um, as we hit the picket lines every single day is like, what are we working for? And you know what potential communities are we damaging in the midst of doing this? I found that that space was incredibly racist, like I said, a sexist, and it was just, it was very harmful in many ways. Um, and so I learned at that point too, that was a, a moment for me in history where I had to re-examine my lens of activism um, and sort of approach it from a much more intersectional perspective.
4: I think for myself, I'm just reflecting back. I'm sure I have earlier stories, but immediately, immediately what comes to mind, and I've shared this in some of the workshops that I facilitated that, I remember working um, at my local school board and I was um, a teaching assistant and I was working with students who have intellectual disabilities. And I remember being in the classroom and it just, um, a classroom that my students were being Um, integrated into as it was a mainstream classroom and I remember how cold the teacher was and how cold the room was towards my students and there was a defining moment when my students came upstairs they realized everybody else was working on like this bigger project and everyone else's work was being showcased except for my two students that I was supporting at the time and um, I remember them saying chambers well, where's our work? And I remember looking at them thinking my, in my head, I'm sort of thinking, yeah, where the hell is your work? Like I was just so angry and um, I made some excuse. I, I buttered it up and, and we kind of, we left the room, we went downstairs, but it was in that moment that I realized like you can easily make someone feel like they belong or not feel. Like, it's a simple action that makes all the difference. And I think for me, it was a defining moment that I don't hold a huge I don't hold a position of power uh and when I say that I'm talking about like structurally in a, in, in a work environment I was a teaching assistant I'm like nobody right I didn't have very much power but I took the little that I had and I was like I need to do something about this because this is not okay right and and I think for me that was a defining moment that I have the ability to be a voice for maybe people who Um, don't have a voice in particular situations, right? And I I think that was a real defining moment for me. And every arena that I've moved into, it doesn't matter how much power or no power I have, I've always been that voice. And sometimes I know that when it comes to activism, you have to be strategic in um, using your voice, right? It's not always screaming and rallying, right? It could be, as you said, a letter, it could be, you know. um, And so I think that was for me a defining moment. I started Humber College March 23rd, and I was like, uh, not lying, I was like cruising. I'm thinking, I'm gonna learn my role. I'm gonna take my time. And then boom, here comes like all these things that happened over the summer. And, and everyone's looking at me to respond because I'm the one that's manning this um, black space, this equity hub. And I was like, oh my goodness. But again, it's being that voice and I, and I felt compelled because I said, I have to do something for these students. And so I put together very quickly, Um, a speaker series where we looked at unmasking the trauma. The second week, we looked at healing and what that looks like for our community. And the third week, we talked about allyship. And that was um, incredibly healing for myself, even though I'm doing it for everybody else, right? When we're working together as a team, it was incredibly healing for myself. So I took that incident many, many, many years ago and was like, I need to be a voice for those who may not have a voice in particular situations. So I think that was my defining moment.
5: Um, and I think for me, it's kind of hard to say, because I think, I, I'll say, I grew up as like a, a crip, queer, uh, Indigenous kid in a small town in Ontario. So so I think, like, I I don't, I, I have a lot of, um, of recollections of, I think, feeling, and I use this word uh, very strategically in thinking of the, the work of Amanda LaDuke, specifically around um, this sort of like grotesqueness of being Crip in a space like that, uh, amongst like uh, amongst a lot of uh, ableism, and I think about there's a joke sort of in my family that I'm very much the sort of like uh, activist one in our family, but it's built on a legacy um, of of both survival, but also um, that that's uh, just kind of the way like my my grandfather was involved in the in the Friendship Center uh, in Hamilton, um, you know that's where my my aunt. Uh, met, uh, who's who's uh, since passed away, but uh, met her husband there. He was one of the founders of that Friendship Centre in Hamilton. Um, I was uh, one of the, um, the folks who uh, helped to really um, bring uh, a small sort of like uh, network, um, the, the Peel Aboriginal Network, into the Friendship Centre movement in Peel. So I was running a Friendship Centre and that was Kind of a funny moment for me, and I was doing that in my like late twenties, um, so it's kind of a funny moment for me of like seeing that this was an intergenerational thing, and then also hearing a lot of stories I, I mentioned earlier um, from some of the you know from my my adopted um, uh, ceremonial family, uh, where you know they were talking about in the seventies they were involved in some of these movements that are essentially the, the same movements uh, as now, right? So I'm thinking specifically here about uh, the Native Peoples Caravan, is a story I've heard a lot about, or even um, uh, Gunas Tatage and some of those other, uh, you know, in the 90s, and the, there's this long legacy of activism within Indigenous communities, and it's like, you know, and, and the Native People's Caravan's an example, a lot of people don't, don't necessarily outside a community know about that one, uh, but that was one that um, was uh, in resistance to uh, and asking for the repeal of the Indian Act. Um, uh, but with a framework of rights to be put in place, which still has not happened, incidentally. Um, but because, uh, because Justin Trudeau's father um, wanted to essentially just assimilate every Indigenous person uh, into the, the sort of body politic, which was the, the white paper. And this was a resistance movement a little bit after that to, to do that, and they were um, attacked um, by, by the newly formed riot squad of the RCMP on the front steps of Parliament. So when we talk about the violence against Indigenous people, like this is an ongoing thing that you know, and that's 1974, 1975. So we're talking about something that you know is is many decades old and hasn't changed. Right, that the same kind of violence is happening any time that we are asserting um, any sort of uh, um, of sovereignty around around land or around those pieces, right? So. I think it's one of those pieces where uh, a lot of us, I think are very like activated and very angry and very frustrated when we're younger. And then as we get older, um, you know, I think maybe Find different ways to be involved. I think for me, um, reclaiming language um, because that was something that uh, that um, that was lost a little bit in my family, um, and and reclaiming ceremony is an important and critical part of that, which is just as political. I think is like marching through the streets, right? It just it looks different. So I think finding our own ways to 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 do that is is important. Um, and I think to the point earlier that like everyone in the movement is needed, right? So uh, I think not holding up one particular kind of activism or one particular kind of participation uh, of resistance uh, is really important because, you know, different things work at different times and for different people, and that's how we get accessibility. So, you know, people doing ceremony to ensure that people who are doing these kind of like marches and stuff are, are safe is just as important as the people on the front lines themselves, but they're not the ones who end up on the front cover of newspaper, right? They're not the ones who get the picture at the leading the front of the marches, right? And so that's, I think, important to recognize too around some of those things for myself is, you know what roles are we playing, and is it about your ego or is it about the community you're serving? And that's, I think, a big question to ask around activism. Right? Is um, are you doing it for your own ego, or are you actually doing it to help the people that you're supposed to? And I don't have a good answer to that. Ego is an ongoing thing as a as a community and as a ceremonial people that we're trying to defeat. Right? It. it props up in those like smallest of ways where you're like I'm doing a good thing I'm sharing this thing on Facebook oh god (laughs) this had a bad reaction oh god what do I do right Uh, and it's all constant learning right we cannot know everything about everyone's uh, different forms of the ways that they're oppressed under settler colonialism and white supremacy it's impossible right so it's listening to other people and their experiences so we can learn uh, learn from those but also find ways to create solidarity.
2: So I mean um if, if no one else has a, has a comment towards that, I, I, I echo Rick. I think this whole panel is just, I'm always in awe of all of your wisdom. Um, and I've i am noticed as for myself, like I don't identify as a slacktivist or any kind of activist um, at all, but I'm recognizing that I think there's a theme here where in each of your personal um, stories, you're starting with yourself and examining your core values and what's important to you, and then exploring spaces externally where those values are reflected. Um, And so I'm wondering, I mean, I I would imagine that I'm not the only person who's who's just now maybe starting to think about what activism looks like for me. As you all are, are you know, as you were thinking about about um, your pieces, would you have any advice or any insight into um, how someone who's totally new to this whole concept of activism could get started?
0: I'm happy to to jump in. Um, I mean, as someone who also calls myself a black activist or not an activist, but something that's been really helpful for me has been like listening to and, and reading critique of activism. Um, and like, that's been so helpful for me in developing my own like, um, form of analysis and, and ethics around this. Um, because again, I think that the inclination is like, okay, like, like, let's just dive in with something. Um, but and, and part of it, I think, still is that piece around like we want to do something that makes us feel good. Um, but I, I really think about um, how reading that, that critique and, and that analysis of it allows us to start to consider our own position in relation to activism or resistance. And I think that that's like such an important piece. And so that I guess that's just one of the things that I would say, like, for me, um, Twitter is all about where like, I, I, I learn from people. And so, um, and I mean like, yes, memes and jokes too, but mainly it's like, I, I follow, um, you know, these people that I referenced earlier and they'll send out those handles and, and email afterwards. Um, but that's been a space for me to really cultivate this learning and to reflect on like, what have been my own actions previously? And have I now been able to start considering like what potential impacts of those were and, and like what motivators for me were. And um, so, I mean, like a lot of introspection is a part of that process, but um, being able to just like learn from other folks has been helpful with that.
4: I think I would echo that, you know, in, in one word I'd say read, right? Read, research, just, just keep, um, keep researching and I, and I would even encourage folks to go back into history, right? To learn whatever cause that really is moving you, um, go back and read and research about the his, like the, the historical um, nuances of that cause, right? Because you want to be able to one, properly align your why and, and you wanna be able to move in, with intention. And so I would go back to read and research, like start there, and it seems like something that's passive, it, but it's it's not. It's 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 going to be so helpful along the way.
3: And I'll just quickly add to that because I know that we are super short on time. Is um, that difference between you know aligning yourself from an egoic like mind perspective versus the heart? And I think that that comes with a lot of the education and awareness is that there is the way in which our brains tell us we ought to be a part of something and I think that aligns with like you know savior complex and a lot of like I think that's rooted in the sort of colonial perspective of I need to help the oppressed versus you know what I was talking about that Adrian Marie Brown talks about is being compelled by your heart and being pulled by joy. Um, in aligning yourself with purpose and intentionality. I think those two things are so like worlds apart, but I think if you don't, you haven't yet extracted, not you, but like in general, if we haven't yet extracted knowing what that resonance that like, are so all, it's like an energetic resonance, what that difference is between like being compelled by your, your mind and your ego versus your heart. I think that's an incredibly important place to, to distinguish.
5: I'll just jump in really quick to echo, I think, what Sylvia said. So for us as Anishinaabe people, when uh, we describe uh, truth, uh, the translation is Debwewin, which actually translates to sort of heart truth, and it's the idea that something isn't true unless it's both um, passing through the the sort of like lens of your your mind and the lens of your spirit. Uh, with the idea being that the spirit feels, the mind thinks, and the body does. So all of those things are important for activism. What I would say too um, in the read and research is ensure you're getting your information from those actually impacted by oppression and not uh, not about us but by us, because uh, again, there's a a focus often on, and I think particularly for Indigenous folks, on like anthropological research, which can be helpful, but is difficult if you don't know the the lens you're reading it through. And also, just gently, that action is rooted in settler colonialism, not action in general, <laughs> but action as a first step is rooted in settler colonialism and is rooted in capitalism. Right? It's I see this thing that's happening. I need to immediately do something about it. And the the missing step there is the listening to the communities that you're that are actually impacted to see what they want. Right. So I'll use an example of like um from Centennial is like you know if if we look at how anti-indigenous racism and how anti-black racism are occurring those are two different mechanisms right so if uh, if the black community is saying we want uh you know we want some sort of um Uh, like a task force or some sort of follow-up then then you should do that because that's what the community is being asked for but then not assume that that Indigenous folks as an example also want that because we're different communities and secondly because we have been task forced and you know whatever to death like we don't need another commission to tell us about the racism we need people to read the shit that we wrote in the first place right and so it's that piece too so read our cap, read the inquiry by the missing like the missing indigenous women two-spirit and girls like those kinds of things you know not just stuff that makes you feel good but stuff that makes you feel like shit. (laughs) that's the stuff you need to read balancing with the joy and the heart and that kind of stuff too um but again like so much work went into those those works so much things went into that Um, and a lot of it ends up sitting on shelves or you know um, when i do my work it's sort of i ask people have you actually looked at the trc have you read any of the accounts from it right have you read any of the report And people are like no i'll get to it right no do that that is a that is a form of activism like knowing What we faced by us, you know, even with its limitations, right? Because that's also, you know, those aren't necessarily works without, uh, without. um, I don't want to say conflict, but you know, there's differing pieces around how those things came to be too. So I would say, sitting with that discomfort is actually the most important thing you can do. Because if if hearing our stories makes you uncomfortable, interrogating why and doing more, like do more reading, and then you know, listen to what folks are telling you with a with a lens that is. not about you right so often when we experience like people learning about our oppression somehow it, it gets and I, i've seen this as a professor like it somehow gets centered on the learner instead of on us right so then i then have to like re-traumatize myself to explain to you why you didn't hear about this stuff in the first place as opposed to that kind of stuff so i would say those are also pieces too and there, there is that life nice, in the chat here a little plug for a talk that um that I'm doing on Monday, we're going to watch some some films about um, uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women, Two-Spirit and girls, um, but we're also going to talk a little bit about um, what the, the definition of Two-Spirit and how those things fit in as a way of talking about settler colonialism too. So if folks are interested in in that, uh, that's also in the chat there, which if you're listening to the, the podcast, that's not helpful for you, but hopefully this part gets cut. <laughs>
2: Thank you all so so much um, for again for your wisdom for your brave sharing. Um, thank you to all the participants who are you know uh, supporting us and engaged and asking questions. It means so much to us that you guys are here, that you all are here. Um, I don't I I don't think I speak for myself when I say that I learn a ton, and that's not new for this panel. I always learn a ton. Um, so. For those of you who are uh, maybe open to a bit more information and discussion, um, I'll be sending on Sunday along all of the resources that our panelists mentioned. Um, and you know a couple including the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Report, uh, some of the Twitter pages, and also links to the Humber and Centennial um, events for the 16 Days of Activism. Um, and if you have any questions, as always, please do email me let me know um and yeah again thank you all for 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 your voices i I think it 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 is so incredibly enlightening and, and i'm always humbled uh to hear to hear from you um so with that i think we can close off until next time